please let's turn to 1st Peter chapter 3 we'll take up our exposition of this passage which addresses primarily our Christian wives and women and although it is a text especially addressed to women and to married women uh, there is plenty of this which speaks to single women and to men this is God's Word which is so very applicable to all of our lives We're going to be considering especially verses 5 and 6, but I'm going to take a couple moments to go back. I know that we have a number of people who were not here for the previous expositions of the first four verses, so I want to make sure that um, I catch you up uh, regarding the other things that we have seen from this portion of God's Word. Um, so let's, uh, let's once again ask for God's help. Our Father, we thank you for your wonderful faithfulness. Every day, you give us life and breath and all things. Every day, you help us in our struggles. You help us to avoid sin, to turn our backs on the world. Well, the world calls, beckons, yet, Lord, we want to be your faithful disciples. We want to do your will. And so we ask that you would come now as our brothers prayed, send your Holy Spirit to us, grant strength to us, grant power to your Holy Word. And as the seed is planted this evening, O oh God, to do cause it to bud and grow in our hearts, in our lives, that we may glorify you by our conduct. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we have seen in uh, the couple of times when I have been here and I've been preaching, particularly from 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter is concerned that Christian wives behave in a manner that commends their profession to those who observe them. So this is indeed about the testimony of a Christian woman in her conduct, in her, in her manner of life, and uh, the behavior that... Peter calls for is right regardless of whether or not people recognize it. I, I would say this, that a woman who lives according to the principles of 1 Peter chapter 3 is a city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. The behavior is so distinctive, so different from the world that you can't conduct your life this world this way in the world, and then people say, "Well, yeah, she's just another woman, a Christian woman who obeys, who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, and who walks in His ways is not just another woman. She's a city set on a hill. Her light shines, and that is again what what Peter is trying to accomplish here. Uh, whether people see it or not, God sees it." The brethren see it. And the brethren, if they are spiritually minded and alive, they will see Christian conduct in a godly woman and they will appreciate it. They will thank God for it. And hopefully, to the extent necessary, they will follow it as well. Just a, a brief word about what we have seen in the first verses. And verses 1 through 4, as we have seen Peter's fundamental concern, Peter's fundamental concern, he puts it up front, he's not embarrassed by it, he wants them to be submissive to their own husbands. I'm not going to re-preach that, uh, but uh, that, this is what, what Peter tells these women, and he tells them that there is an evangelical value to submission in a, even in a difficult case. The case is when a man who is married to this woman is unconverted and hostile. I think Peter has in mind women who have not married outside of the faith in disobedience to the word of God, but women who were converted after they were married. And so they are now converted. Their life is turned around. 
the grace of God has come into their hearts, and so they have the difficult case of being married to a unconverted man, and oftentimes a hostile man. And really, really, Peter sees the world around Christians as a hostile environment. And that's why he says earlier in the chapter that uh, Christians need to think about their lives as aliens and strangers, and they must abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul and keep their behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And then in the following verses, he's just, he's just flowering that out. He's just opening that up. What does it mean to be that kind of a Christian in a hostile world? Well, for the woman who's married to an unconverted man, this is her difficult case. He's unconverted. He's hostile. The value of it is that he may be one. Peter's aim is that he may be one. He may become at least sympathetic to the gospel. His wife's aim is that he may be saved. Peter says he may be one. Again, I can't take the time to preach that out this evening, uh, but he does. He, he has this concern. He has the aim, the evangelical aim, and value of submission, and then he spells it out. He spells it out in some concrete terms. He tells them negatively how they are not to behave. He says they to, that their husbands may be one without a word. And that's an amazing statement. Peter doesn't mean absolutely she said never says anything, but he's not one by nagging. He's not one because she's constantly nagging him, uh, and that's what he means by without a word. Positively, what he is one by is by her behavior, her manner of life. It's a lifestyle word, that, that conversation word which crops up in First Peter in chapter 1 and in this chapter, again, it's lifestyles, the way you live your life. And so he says it's that it's her behavior that is calculated by God to win his respect. What is that behavior like? He says it's chaste, speaking about her sexual fidelity and her blameless discharge of her duties as a wife. And uh, it is respectful, it is with fear, and it's especially, of course, the fear of God, not the fear of men. That's the behavior. That's what characterizes a behavior in general. And that results in a reputation. Again, that's verses 1 and 2. Uh, verse 3 and 4, uh, Peter talks about her reputation, her reputation, which is the result of her lifestyle. He says... Uh, that is negative. He says something negatively about it. He says it's not her outward appearance. Now, a Christian woman, because somebody might misunderstand if I don't say this, a Christian woman wants to have a pleasing, appropriate outward appearance. Some people think that if a woman becomes a Christian, then she dresses uh, in a, what's the right word, a, a, a dumpy fashion. Uh, she, she never emphasizes any of her uh, attractive features. That's not what, really what Peter means. But you have to picture what a woman uh, Peter has in mind. He talks about braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry and putting on dress. None of the, well, braiding the hair is not wrong. Uh, it's, not, it's not wrong. Uh, but what Peter has in mind is that the, the rich woman of that century would braid their hair elaborately and put gold all in their hair so that their hair was very ostentatious. And when they walked around, it, it drew everybody's attention because the, the gold sparkled all, all in her elaborate hairdo. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about an ostentatious way of braiding the hair. And of course, a woman of status wanted to show that she was rich. I worked with a woman of a similar nature. When I worked for a bank many years ago, uh, she was the head of a call center and she wore gold like crazy around her neck, several chains of gold on her arm, bangles, gold bangles on her fingers, rings in her ears. If she were of a different mindset, she'd probably have him piercing her nose also, but she didn't. But she wore lots of gold, and it said, I'm rich, I'm important. 
And Peter says that's not the impression a, a Christian woman wants to give. And he's talking about extravagant dress, not attractive dress, not modest dress, but extravagant dress. So that's Peter's concern. That he doesn't want a Christian woman to have that kind of reputation that I'm spending a lot of money on myself and I'm dressing myself up so that I'm the center of attention. That's what Peter doesn't think is appropriate for a Christian woman. Positively, he says, you know, the, 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 the negative is about the outward. Notice what the positive is. It's the inward life, the hidden person of the heart. Not what strikes the eye, but the person, the character, is what gives her her good reputation. Specifically, she has a meek spirit. There's a calm gentleness which, by which she receives the truth and witnesses of her faith. It's a quiet spirit, a meek and quiet spirit. She's unruffled. She's not in what I like to call emergency mode all the time. And this kind of character, Peter says, and we're still in review, is precious in the sight of God. And any woman who values the approval of God, this will be of immense importance to her. She wants God to value her conduct, to see her as she is, and to say to her, as, as, uh, as, as it says in uh, the, the parable, uh, well done, good and faithful servant. Well, that's where we have been. Today we're considering verses 5 and 6 in the text. Now read it again. And this is uh, Peter's, uh, Peter's enforcement. This is Peter's encouragement. Why should a Christian woman want to live this kind of a life? Well, he, he tells her she's looking at mentors. Now, a Christian woman may be a mentor, and I suggest that the text tells her how to be a mentor because she will be noticed. Her character, her manner of life will be noticed. And other spiritually-minded women are going to say, that's the, that's the kind of a woman I want to be. Uh, but the, the mentors that Peter has in mind now are not people who live in her time. Notice what it says in verse 5 and 6. For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Here is a mentor for Christian women. So, let's consider what this passage is telling us about the character and the example for Christian women. In verse 5, Peter tells them that he wants them to think about women of the past. It's very nice when you have someone before you, I, uh, whether you're a man or a woman, you see sterling Christian character, excellent Christian character, is something tremendously refreshing and attractive to genuine, godly Christian character. Uh, I was just 17 years old when the Lord laid hold of me, and I had some, I had no, my, I, I, I was raised without my father. I had no father in the home, as long as I can remember, as long as I have memory back. But I had Christian men who took an interest in me men of good character that was invaluable to me even though i was aware that i was not on their level spiritually it was attractive and it was helpful i had something to aim at an example to to aim at and this is the value of what peter is saying here he has these examples and he tells them well these are not living at the same time as you are and this particular value here the former times, before old, before gospel times, Peter says, when he talks in verse 5, for in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. So he's pointing back to the past. This particular value 
in this approach of Peter. Of course, it's inspired value. So it's former times before the gospel, particularly Old Testament. And he, he points out there were holy women, the holy women also. Uh, these are, this could only mean one thing. Holy women are sanctified women. They were distinguished by the godliness they had attained. Now that godliness only comes by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the God of Israel, in particular in the Old Testament times, looking forward to the Messiah, hoping in the redemption that came through the Lord Jesus Christ. But these were women who had the root of the matter in them, who had been converted, and who were hoping in God. These were holy women, sanctified women, distinguished by the godliness they had attained. And Peter, Peter says there's a group of them. He says this is not just one woman. We're going to look at one example, as you can tell. But he says the, she's not the only example. He says, well, I'm giving you in a case study of one such woman. He says there are other holy women who live the same kind of life. He asserts that they are examples of what he had said before in verses 1 through 4. So, these exemplary women, these mentors, hoped in God. That's, that's what... Uh, that was the root out of which their godly character sprang. They hoped in God. This uh, this particular word, we use the word hope in a, in a somewhat different way than the New Testament uses it. When we say hope, uh, we're not sure of what's going to happen. For example, when I get in my car this evening with my wife, I hope that there are no accidents on the way back to New Jersey. I hope that traffic will be light. I hope that I'll be able to get home in less than an hour. Usually I am, but that's a hope. And when you live in the metropolitan area and you drive on the highways, you know, that's, that's a hope, but it, a lot of times it won't happen, right? Uh, but the term for hope in here is expectation. It's a certain expectation. These exemplary women hoped in God, and that is basically a synonym for their faith. Let's look just at a couple of quick passages, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 21, for an example of this use of the language. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 21. I'll back up just a little bit. Speaking of the Messiah in verse 18, my servant whom I behold, my servant whom I have uphold, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. He shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. And now here's the passage which uh, gives us the word hope. In him, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Is that maybe I'll be saved and maybe, or maybe I won't? No. When it comes to the Lord Jesus Christ, and, and Matthew uses this quote from the Old Testament, from um, Isaiah 11.10, if you're interested. The hope is a certain expectation. The Gentiles who hope in Jesus have a definite expectation that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be faithful and true to his word. The uh, same kind of language in him, him uh, that, I'm sorry, uh, in him, the Gentiles will hope is also quoted by Paul in Romans 15 from Isaiah 42. The Gentiles will hope. Peter exhorts Christians, 1 Peter 3, to be ready to give an account of the hope within them. Same word. So it's a synonym for faith, and it's a certain expectation of grace. It is an anticipation of receiving grace. 
So this concept of hope takes in the, the uh, concept of expectation, anticipation, especially where obeying God seems to put us in jeopardy. If you wonder, like many Christians do these days, what's going to happen in our country, what's happening to our, our culture, it's unraveling before our eyes. And we're anticipating what Christians have anticipated since I was converted in 1968. They used to tell me, as a young Christian, persecution's coming. We're going to taste it. And it's happening more and more. It's happening around the world. It's happening in our, cult in our culture. And this is what Peter's saying. That when we anticipate that we may experience persecution, aggressive Aggressive hatred for our faith in Christ. This is where our hope, our anticipation of grace becomes all the more important. And again, the, Peter thinks of the, the woman whose husband is unconverted, who is disobedient to the word. And he, he tells her that these women were hoping in God and they were not being frightened by any fear. This is what enables them to live the kind of life that Peter urges them to. It's a certain expectation of grace. And so, uh, this is where Peter starts. He starts with the example of the woman, holy women from former times, and then he opens up their behavior. Okay, And the behavior, really, he's pointing back to what he's already said about them, and he, he tells them who, who they, what, what kind of behavior they live. He says they adorn themselves. Now, I, I think I've said it before, but I'll say it again. Uh, Peter understands women. Some men don't understand women. Most men don't understand women. I'm spending 50 years trying to learn about my wife and to understand my wife. She keeps on surprising me. Um, but Peter understands that women like to make things pretty. They like to make things beautiful, attractive. And uh, Peter says, this is what the holy women have done. They are women who have been adorning themselves. And by the way, that verb in the Greek is related to the English word cosmetics. You know, by, you buy cosmetics, you buy certain things to make your face look a certain way you're beautifying them you're making it look pretty you go around the house and you uh, change the curtains rearrange the furniture you try to make the place more attractive you're beautifying that's what women like to do well peter says these women were adorning themselves they were they were practicing spiritual cosmetology they continually set themselves to the task of spiritual beautification. They spent time, time and effort, maybe even money, at the aim of spiritual beautification. These women had this ambition to make things pretty, turned to godliness. They said, I want to be spiritually pretty. I remember when my children were young my we went to a conference i think that was a conference in pennsylvania at lycoming college one of the pastors who was speaking there addressed my daughters and they you know he said you look very nice on the outside you look very nice but what's more important than being pretty on the outside the answer being pretty on the inside and i appreciate that we've never We've never forgotten them. This is what Peter's saying. These women, holy women of old did. They adorned themselves. And they adorned themselves by submitting themselves to their own husbands. Not against God's will. Again, a Christian woman still has a responsibility to obey God. And when her husband directs her to do something sinful, she should calmly graciously refuse. 
but these women still regarded submitting themselves to their own husbands as the will of God, and they regarded submitting to their husbands as an act of spiritual beautification. That's what Peter is saying. He says they used to adorn themselves, comma, being submissive to their own husbands. They used their time, their energy, to accomplish what their husbands told them to do, and they used their time and their energy and even perhaps their money, there is a way in which they may do that to beautify themselves and submit to their own husbands. Peter says they were not saying, and this is my interpretation. You can tell me if you think I'm wrong. Not immediately, but afterwards. They were not seeking some friend or relative to agree with her against him. Sometimes when a woman doesn't like what her husband says, she goes to find other people who agree with her. Now, sometimes you want to know, am I thinking straight? My husband wants me to do this. I don't think I should be doing this. What do you think? She may seek counsel. She may seek counsel from her friends, from her pastor. But uh, they weren't seeking an excuse not to obey their husbands. They were seeking to do it. And that's the way these holy women are represented as habitually engaged in a spiritual cosmetology, submitting to their husbands. Now, I, I venture to say, you probably say, well, Brother Frank, that's a strange combination of things. Beautifying yourself, practicing spiritual cosmetology, particularly submitting to my own husband. That's why Peter wants you to think of this, uh, this, um, these mentors, these examples. Before we press on, though, you might wonder, how did Peter know? Peter says, the holy woman also in former times who hoped in God used to adorn themselves being submissive to their own husbands. Well, Peter, how do you know? You know, you're living in, at, toward the middle of the first century and you're talking about Old Testament women. How do you know, Peter? Well, Peter's not saying, well, I think so. I think so. I think it's reasonable to think that they would behave this way. No, Peter's saying, I know that they did. I know that they did. And here is one significant example. And the example we see is in verse 6. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So here is the example. Here, here, here are examples. Peter says these are women from the Old Testament period. These examples are playing from verse 6. I'm going to list some. We're going to look at only one. I'll list them for you. The first example, of course, is Sarah, because he makes her the example, the mentor for Christian women. It's Sarah. And then you have Rebecca. You have Esther. You have uh, the Shunammite, Bathsheba. Esther's a really interesting one, even though Peter doesn't name her because her husband was an unconverted Christian. Uh, an unconverted pagan potentate. And you remember how Esther deals with her husband. In the face of great danger, here's Haman wanting to wipe out all the Jews. And he's even gotten the king to sign a decree. He doesn't know that the decree will also murder Mordecai and Esther. But the, the way Esther behaves herself, she wants to secure her husband's goodwill get him to protect the Jews from the murderous efforts of Haman. She does it in a, in, a, in a wonderful way, a way of grace. So she's a good example. Um, there's also uh, the example of Proverbs chapter 31. You know, in Proverbs 31, we have uh, the outline of a Proverbs 31 woman. I've heard that term used. She's a, she's a woman with all of those characteristics. The, the
The heart of her husband trusts in her. He will have no lack of gain. He is is known among the elders when he sits with the elders in the gate. He's known in the city when he sits among the elders in the gate. All of these things that he declares about her. The teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She is an excellent woman. Now, the thing that's interesting about the Proverbs 31 woman is that although a man, whose name we don't know from any place else in Scripture, he wrote it, his mother taught him. At the beginning of Proverbs 31, it says that these are the words of, I believe it's Agar, who, whose mother taught him. And the Proverbs 31 woman was some woman who said, this is an excellent wife. Looking for a wife? Here's what you want to find in an excellent wife. And he tells us all about the life of an excellent wife. Well, why, why did she? Well, she herself was such a woman. And she knew that there would be women in Israel found for her son. And so he tells her what the woman is like. That's evidence that the holy women also who hoped in God uh, lived this kind of a life. And of course, the book of Proverbs has the opposite. The rebellious, contentious woman of Proverbs is the very opposite. She's always against her husband, always fighting her husband, always disagreeing with her husband. She's contentious. She, she as it were, she has a piece of... Uh, a piece of um, Attire, boxing gloves, right? Think about that when you think of the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 7, 11 and 9, 13. Proverbs 21, 19 and 25, 24. All passages I don't have time to look at. Because we want to get to the gracious, good wife, who's not a contentious wife, who is a model, a um, mentor. For Christian women, that's where we come now in verse 6. One particular example, Abraham's wife, Sarah. You may ask yourself the question, why Sarah? Why does Peter lift up Sarah before us? Well, a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bible records her as the earliest extensive history of a believing woman in Scripture. You think, I like to think this way about my Bible. I hope you find it helpful too when we get uh, these questions about conduct or lifestyle. I like to think through my Bible. I like to think, well, where's the first example of this? Where are there examples? The first example of a woman of this kind with an extensive history is Sarah. Nobody before her. We don't know anything about Noah's wife. We don't know everything about the previous wives. The first extensive history of a believing woman is Sarah. That's why Peter chooses her. And then there's the clear evidence. She was submitting to the command and teaching of Abraham. And she, uh, she, she obeyed him. She obeyed him. She actually obeyed. Now, where do we find this? Well, we find this. I have to, I have to back up a little bit. Abraham, when Abraham uh, was in hostile territory, and uh, he was worried because Sarah was a beautiful woman. And he said, these guys, I go, I go among the Philistines. I go down to Egypt, and these people are going to kill me because my wife's beautiful. They're going to kill me so they can have my wife and add her to the harem. Uh, And he said, call me my brother. The Hebrew is Achi. That's that's the word. That's what he told her. Call me Achi, my brother. But uh, that was a big, that was a sin Abraham was guilty of. That's very realistic. And Sarah actually complied then. She did. And she shouldn't have. But then came the time when Abraham said, don't call me my brother. Call me Adonai, my Lord. Now, and again, what what Peter is saying is that this was her habitual pattern that she called him my Lord. Now you might wonder, 
do we actually have a verse in scripture that tells us that Sarah called Abraham my Lord? Well, yeah. Turn please to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Here is a place where we find out that Sarah had this title for her husband, Abraham. And since earlier in the history, she had called him my brother. Now notice in uh, chapter 18, this is the, the, the record when God told Abraham that Sarah was going to have a son. And Sarah does some things which are uh, improper, but she also does something full of faith and obedience. <laughs> so, in verse 9, the messengers said to him, Abraham, where is Sarah your wife? And he said, there in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself. After I have become old, shall I have pleasure? Notice the next words. My Lord being old also. Sarah did some bad things then. The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the, at the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied it. That's called a lie. Saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. But he said, No. But you did laugh. So here embedded is the notice of Sarah's sin. There was a measure of well, some doubt, right? But she said, my Lord. And where, when did she say that? Where did she say that? She said that in her heart. The unspoken word. What you say in your heart when your husband says, hmm, you know, that that rose was kind of burnt. It wasn't quite right. What you say in your heart, perhaps, is really your true self. It indicates your attitude and disposition. And if you say in your heart, hmm, he won't get the next rose very any any better. No, you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't say that. What Sarah said in her heart, my Lord. Peter says, she was obeying Abraham. He had formerly said, call me my brother, my brother, Ahi. Now he says, call me Adonai, my Lord. And Sarah not only does it out loud in obedience in dangerous times, but she says it in her heart spontaneously when God makes this promise of a son. Shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? That's Sarah's faith and Sarah's verbal obedience. And it wasn't forced because she says it in her heart. So, as Sarah, a mentor for the Christian woman, obeying Abraham, who had stopped telling her, say, my, my brother, say, my Lord. And this is what Sarah did. Another interesting thing about this, just very briefly, is that even in old age, Sarah was very beautiful. Very beautiful. And, and again, uh, you know, that concern that Abraham has, that men might kill him for his wife, uh, that, was still, that was still a danger. But Sarah obeyed Abraham calling him Lord. And um, then Peter, in our passage, back in 1 Peter chapter 3, encourages us to imitate Sarah. 
particularly our Christian sisters, to imitate Sarah. Get back to 1 Peter 3 and verse 6. Notice the second half here. Abraham, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Here's the encouragement to imitate Sarah. It's an encouragement to imitate her just in writing her virtues. When Peter writes about her and the way she conducted her life, this is an encouragement. But Peter improves this by the same gracious and artistic way he, he has of uh, exhorting believers. He tells them, he tells the, our Christian women that by the habitual exercise of virtuous behavior, they prove themselves to be her daughters. You become Sarah's daughters, even though you're Gentiles, you still are able to own Sarah as your mother by the way that you conduct yourself in this regard. One of the commentators, John Brown, and I noticed it's on Pastor's bookshelf. John Brown, he says this, the apostles' declaration goes on the same principle as our Lord. If you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham, referring to John 8, 39. And if you, if you are to be Sarah's daughter, you obey Sarah's example, you imitate her, and you, that's what Peter says, you've become her daughters when you do this, when you live this way. He says, you do them good, you do good, this is a, this is a good thing, positively, and again, he says, the courage of living as a godly Christian woman delivers you from sinful fear, not being frightened by any fear. Now, some people say that women have a tendency to be worry, worriers, being be fearful. Uh, I don't know if that's universally true, but again, Peter names it. He says you shouldn't be frightened by any fear. If you're walking with God, if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, habitually confessing your sins, continually going back to the word of God, how can I obey the word of God? Uh, then you don't need to be afraid because God is your God and he is the Lord of providence and he controls everything that happens to your life. A couple of weeks ago, I had a motor accident on my way home from church in New Jersey. And uh, it was helpful to me to say to myself, it was an accident, but it was no accident. It was an accident that was not an accident. It was ordained by God. So all of the things that happened as a result of that accident, they're under God's control. The person who walks with God, who obeys God, can look at all of the difficult providences of life. And not be afraid of them, because God is in control. My Savior, who loves me, who died for me, he's in control. He's bringing all things to pass. He's, he's planned out my life. He knows my days. And this is part of what Peter, I believe, is referring to. The Christian woman who walks with God does not need to be afraid. She'll, be in, she'll have tribulation. She'll have problems. Ungodly husbands might seek to abuse their authority. Or being disobedient to the word, they might threaten her with divorce. They might behave in violence or deprivation. And the Christian woman will not give in to fear. I heard a story just recently about a woman who was married to a Muslim. And uh, she became a Christian and she wanted to go to a conference and her husband said, what, you're going to leave for a week and leave me alone to fend for myself? And uh, he beat her, and he told her not to go. She got up in the morning of the, con of the conference, and she said, I want to honor my Lord. I'm, go I'm going to go to the conference. She went to the conference, and he, uh, he took the key, out the key to the house. He walked outside. His neighbors were there. He said, this is the key to my house. This is what she uses to get into my house. 
She'll never see it again. And he threw it into the river. Well, at the end of the conference, I'm told it's a true story. It's a good story. At the end of the conference, she went to the marketplace because she said, I want to make my husband a nice meal. When he comes home, I want to show my husband that I do love him. So she went and she bought two fish. And she went home with the two fish and couldn't get in the house because the door was locked. So she started cleaning the fish outside the house. And she was cleaning the fish, opening up the stomach, and she found a piece of metal in the stomach of the fish. It was the key to the house. So she went into the house, and her husband came home angry. How did you get in the house? And she told him. And he was dumbfounded. And the next Sunday morning, she, he had said to her, can I go to church with you? And after church, he went to the pastor and said, I want to serve the God of Christians. Because the, this is the God who can do wonders for his people. I want this God to be my God. And he was converted. It's a wonderful story. It'd be a great story if it weren't true, but I'm told it's true. <laughs> she was unfrightened by any fear. And God acted on her behalf. Isn't that surprising? It's not the first time God put something metal in a fish. You think about that. Fish really don't eat metal. But twice in our Bible, oh well, in this case, and in a Bible case, where a fish ate a piece of money, which God used. Okay. Well, that's what Peter says by way of encouraging Christian women, Christian women, to live a lifestyle. Now, Submission is not easy. But every Christian has to submit. You understand that? Every Christian has someone to submit to. People think, well, you know, uh, you, pastors don't have to submit. Wrong. They do have to submit to God, to the Word of God. And if they have good pastor friends, they submit to one another. Men have to go to a job. All, every man who's gainfully employed has to submit to somebody. Everybody has to submit to somebody. And in this sense, we men can take example from Sarah and from our Christian wives. I said, Pastor, and I were talking and I, I made the point. If you want to lead, you have to be able to submit. A man who cannot submit cannot lead. A person who cannot submit cannot lead. So every one of us should take heed to this example and say from time to time, Kupatasso, I submit. We all need to submit to God. And we all need to submit to those who are over us in the Lord or even not in the Lord. All have to learn how to submit. You might think to yourself, maybe you're young, you don't have a job. Well, one of these days, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna get out on my own, I'm gonna do my own thing. No, you're not. You're gonna be submitting to somebody, I promise you. You'll live a very miserable life if you don't know how to submit. And submission is a grace from God. Well, there are more applications. Let me be very quick about it. What I want you to see, one thing I want you to see this evening is that godliness is, is not entirely different between the Old and New Testament. Godliness is fundamentally the same in every age. You can go to your Old Testament and study Christian behavior, Christian faith. That's, that's what Peter is saying. He's saying godliness is not fundamentally different now than it was when Sarah was living. We have the same hope in God. And godliness is fundamentally the same in every age between Old and New Testament. Again, I'll beat a drum that I've beat before. Ask you men, would you be delighted in a wife preoccupied with godliness? You realize that when a woman becomes preoccupied with godliness, her life is going to be different 
from the kind of women who run up and down Flatbush Avenue. She's going to be modest in a manner that the women of the world have no idea about. They, they want to flaunt everything. They want to attract every eye. That's not a Christian woman. Christian women will be different. Men, does your, is your husband, is your wife convinced that you want her to be a woman like Sarah? If she is, do you, do you praise her? You should. Let her know. That's the kind of woman you value. And that will be a great motivation to her. So, make sure that you communicate to your wife that this is what you value and you appreciate all of her efforts to do those things. And of course, this, this teaches us, again, that we have role models on a very wide scale. We have role models on a very wide scale. Some people say, well, Jesus is my only model. He's my only perfect model. He's a perfect model. He has obeyed God perfectly. And I, I, I want always to be looking at the Lord Jesus Christ as my role model, my one supreme model. But that doesn't mean I don't have any other models. I'll just take a, a moment and then we'll pray uh, in Paul's letter to the Philippian Christians. Verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 17 is my verse. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. He could have said, just walk in the pattern of Jesus, and that's a biblical principle, but Pete, but the Apostle Paul says there are other models that you should have. Godly examples in your own generation. So we should, yes, look supremely unto Jesus, but also look to those other models that God has given us. Well, I trust that these things will be helpful to us. Let's pray and ask God to help us in this, in this whole endeavor of godliness. Our Lord, you have saved us. You have, you have come, Lord Jesus, and obeyed for us and died for us and risen for us in order that we might enter heaven, in order that you might be our supreme delight, our supreme example. And we thank you for all that you have done. We thank you for all the word of God, every word, every line. And we pray that you would help us to take the things that we have learned this day and apply them to our hearts and lives. Please bless the women of City View Baptist Church, whether they're married or unmarried, young or old. Bless our dear sisters with those principles of godliness which have been set before us today. Bless all of the men of City View as well. Save the unsaved, Lord. Give to us all that kind of a heart that submits first to you and then to all of those whom you have put in authority under us so that we may lead an exemplary life of godliness and be good examples in an ungodly age. Receive our thanks for your presence with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.